All right, and we're back. We're uh, coming in with Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Peppermint Porter. Warm up this season with a special release of Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Peppermint Porter. With just the right amount of chocolate and peppermint, this bourbon barrel-aged porter is the perfect complement to a warm fire. Notes of bourbon and toffee complement the roasted malts in this brew, and the result is a peppermint patty cocktail in your glass. It's an ABV of 8.2, an IBU of 16. All right. And what does uh, everybody else have for round two? More vodka. My rocks are gone now. <laughs> I'm drinking some some old Rasputin Russian Imperial Stout. Ooh, I love me some Russian. That's the. I have my my favorite Scotch. Well, one of my favorite Scotches, just regular old Glenlivet. Oh, nice. That's actually a good one right there. That's a very I, good I, one. It's so smooth. It it, it is sort of. I I, have, I I appreciate the less peaty side of Scotch. Um. So that's why I like Glenlivet a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I enjoy myself. Scotch, uh, bourbon, uh, a little bit of, of uh, whiskey from uh, the Irish. Uh, I'm, I'm more partial to the bourbon side of it because I like yeah. that, that warming, harder flavor. You know? <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. They're, they're, it's, it's funny y'all are drinking the bourbon barrel stuff because there's a great coffee shop up here in Milwaukee called Hawthorne uh, Coffee that does a bourbon barrel cold brew. Oh. Oh. What? Yes, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I'm sure um, it is. Yeah. Uh, uh, fellow, fellow Marquette uh, scholar named Nick Elder, uh, who teaches at University of Dubuque, um, there he teaches at their seminary. Uh, he introduced me to this place, and they they keep the the beans before they roast them. They leave them in these spent bourbon barrel casks for like yeah. a long time. Yeah. And it soaks in all the the bourbon taste. And then they roast them and make the cold brew. And I'm telling you, it is like, oh, I, yeah. I literally had to buy a growler because I like love this stuff so much. You yeah. sold me. I'm yeah. sold. I'm sold. No. That's, that's the kind of thing I would move my family just to live with. <laughs> right. <laughs> I told you guys Milwaukee's better than Cleveland. Dude, that got me through so much paper writing. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> oh, that is, you sold me. Yeah, anything aged in, yeah. in bourbon barrels. Man. Oh man, well, Kentucky bourbon. I'm not, I'm, not as hip. I'm not as hip as some of my friends. So it's like Nick is super hip and like knows all the spots and knows all that. So I let you know I learn from him. I'm like, all right, show me the stuff, man. Show me the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. just move to Milwaukee and steal your friends. So. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I've had this well, before. The nose on this one literally smells like. A peppermint peppermint patty. I mean, that's oh, and I man. love a good peppermint patty, and that's that's what this smells like. It's, it's just, special. It really is special. And it is dark. I'm gonna pray, guys. By your I heads. I'm evangelical. <laughs> 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 and it's like I have to put my glass up to the bright light in the room just to get the slightest light through it. So it is dark, but uh, Kentucky bourbon. Oh my lord, this smells good. They don't make anything really bad. Especially around the holidays, they usually do a honey one, but it, that thing's like ten and ten and a half percent. Yeah. Oh my lord! Wow this this one's the nice flavor because... in this is phenomenal, just phenomenal. Yeah, that's it's very rich. There's no wet dog here. It's only eight point two percent. So you know, I'm 
Right. You I'm could not get even three remotely of these charismatic, in. but I suspect that beer could get me to speak in tongues. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it's it's like the perfect balance yeah. of bourbon and peppermint patty and yeah, porter. I mean, it's it's all right there. Yep. No, it's, it's amazing. Just, wow. They really don't make Drop anything. Drop one of those bad. on my doorstep, Gumby, please. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean. You'll have one tonight. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's definitely not cheap. Right. Uh, yeah. So, you you know. This is definitely on the higher end, but man. You are not kidding. That is so good. Just so good. Wow. Yes. <laughs> back to you, David. Diving right back in. So you were touching on, um, and I know that we have everybody has questions, but I want you to finish because your train of thought was just phenomenal and contextual and historical, and please dive right back in. <laughs> Yeah, we're get, we're we're gonna we're gonna start wrapping up. So so when he when he um, when Paul addresses in this passage the the nature of the resurrection body, and he what I was saying before is if he's content, I think there's a contextualized intra Jewish debate going on um, between sort of the Apollo school that's more Alexandrian in their thinking that think of the fulfillment of the promises and the covenant to be um, more allegorized. Uh, as the individual sort of internal struggle and mastery of virtue so that the soul can be like um, refined and pure and righteous so that when the body dies, it can ascend to the heights and, you know, be like a celestial being and, and be eternal and immortal and glory and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Philo uh, says, well, um, for, but it's the, for, for Philo, for some Alexandrians, The idea is not that the actual cosmos itself needs to be like overturned and all the powers are external and the gods are bad. And that's not it. That's not the problem. The problem is internal. Mm. It's the internal struggle of the soul where you're trying to master ethically the soul. And Philo will allegorize a lot of these texts um, to mean the struggle with the inner self. Mm-hmm. That the, you must rule over, you know, the passions and master them instead of ruling over the cosmos, literally, you know, mm-hmm. it's like it's allegorized as sort of a mastery of the internal struggle so that, you know, your soul can arise. So it's a very individualized eschatology. Yeah. It's like thinking about the end. You know, there is no big, epic whole world end in that sense. It's more of a in terms of the fulfillment of the promises to the fathers and all this, the way he interprets it, it's more of, you know, let, let this free the soul, you know, master the virtues. It's about ethics and mastering the virtues and ascent to heaven, the individual eschatology. Now that doesn't make anyone mad. Okay. (laughs) That doesn't upset anybody in the Greek world. Everybody can get on board with that. Mm -hmm. You can be in an urbane, sophisticated Jew and go to any temple you want and as long as you're, you know, doing your mastery of the virtues and all that, whatever, you know. But for some more apocalyptic, like hard line, you know, guys, they're like, no, you're idol worshipers. You are breaking Torah. How dare you? You know, uh, and so and they would think they would think that uh, some of them think that they, they all sort of believe in this becoming like the angels or becoming like the gods in the mm-hmm. afterlife. But they have very different views of what that means, you know. Mm. For the Platonists, it's just the soul arising as an individual. Mm. For some apocalypticists, it means 
a literal judgment of all the current hosts that rule that they've led the nations astray. That's why they're idol worshipers, you know, in the Torah over and over, especially this passage from Deuteronomy 4 is about not worshiping the idols, not making idols, yeah. not making images. Um, and so but the, the ones who are more hardline on that, uh, on this view, which I'm suggesting Paul is definitely, you know, all you need is first Corinthians eight through 12, read that. And you'll see how hardline he is against idolatry, right? So um, that's literally what the entire section is about. And he quotes from these same Deuteronomy passages. But for Paul, it, he's condemning it. He's like, you do not go after them. And so for Paul, becoming like the angels or the gods is still in view. But through texts like Daniel 12, where Daniel will prophesy of... Um, when Michael, the chief mediatorial figure, the chief angel of heaven, chief prince, he's called, arises, and then the Theodosian version of the Septuagint, it's actually Anastasis, it's the same term we use for resurrection in Paul, so the, uh, well, what we call the resurrection, is, is Michael arises victorious in Daniel, in, in chapter 12 of Daniel, the, fi the finale of Daniel, and that's coming in context of this wrestling with the princes of the nations in Daniel 10 that's mentioned. Um, when the messenger comes to Daniel and tells him about the, the future Messiah that's going to come and everything, the messenger tells him that he had been wrestling with like Prince of Persia and Prince of Greece. And so these like celestial beings, these princes, and in Greek, it's the same terms that Paul uses. For the principalities and powers, same same terms in Greek, and so, you know, this messenger of Yahweh, this one of Yahweh's angels, has to like fight these like national princes that don't want the message of the coming Messiah to get to Daniel, right? You know, and so eventually at the end of the book of Daniel, this chief mediatorial figure in Daniel's case, he's just Michael, um, arises victorious because Michael uh, earlier Daniel's been wrestling with these guys, you know. Um, and so he's finally victorious. And when that happens in Daniel 12, this is the past. This is the only passage in the Old Testament, literally the only passage that explicitly describes resurrection. This is it. The, the, Isaiah and Ezekiel are allegory. Daniel is like no one debates this. In Daniel, it's very literal. Daniel is saying that they were literally ascend to the they, they will become as the stars of heaven in the resurrection they will shine as the stars of heaven um and so all the commentators agree pretty much that that means they'll become like these heavenly hosts like the angels you know um so this is what the resurrection's like you know you go up and become like the celestial host because back in daniel 8 there's this they talk about this the celestial host the stars that like rebelled you know some of them rebelled and and were cast down, and so this this early Jewish tradition of like the righteous from Israel, the faithful, they will ascend and shine as the stars of heaven. They will be the rulers. They will inherit nations. They will rule over all the peoples. The book of the wisdom uh, wisdom of Solomon in the Apocrypha. It's in um, all Bibles except Protestants. Thanks a lot, Luther. Appreciate that. Um, <laughs> So uh, in Wisdom of Solomon, um, the Wisdom of Solomon actually quotes from Daniel 12, this same thing of the becoming as the stars of heaven, the lights 
in heaven and shining like them. And he says, and ruling over nations and peoples. Mm. And so this, this idea of the celestial host of the rulers over peoples, them being deposed and then ascending to the heights, you know, that's the idea. So, but for wisdom, wisdom is very platonic. It's more about the afterlife of the soul. You know, the body dies and you ascend and go up there. And then that's, that's it. That's the end, you know, they live forever. So, but for Paul, as an apocalypticist, it's the final moment, the judgment of all the principalities and powers, all the angels, all the gods, they need to be judged. And the seed of Abraham, the righteous, they will take the seats of judgment. They will become as the stars quite literally, you know, they will be transformed. So this is where Paul goes with this de de uh, describing, as we covered earlier, the passage of describing the terrestrial body and then the celestial body that you will have the you will take on the celestial body in the resurrection. Now it's very popular in Christian thought today because of major scholars and proponents of this view that resurrection is all about getting up on a new earth and having a new earthly body and eating your food down here and enjoying the earth and it's all about the earth. Well, um, and, and that's what resurrection's about. And it all in scholars like this, um, I unfortunately have to use a name because he's the biggest proponent of this. N.T. Wright is a good example of this because a lot of people follow him on this and follow his line of thought because of his writings on this point because um, he's written far, far too much on Paul. Um, uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, he, I mean, seriously. I mean, did you need two huge tomes like that after you wrote like a million other things? Okay, anyways. So... Um, so he, he, his argument, and the reason I'm just using him by name, he's a reference point that maybe some people might know, yeah. um, but, uh, yeah. and sort of a source of a lot of this um, contemporary Christian thought about resurrection. So um, the idea is that, well, the Christians, the early Christians like Paul, the first Christian theologian, not a Jewish apocalypticist, he's like the first Jewish, you know, first Christian theologian, you know, he'll say that, um, you know, you'll have a resurrection body in a new earth, a new Adam, you know, Adam's made from the dust. You'll, it's a new Adam, a new earth. That's what the resurrection body is about. It's not about going to heaven when you die. That's not what it's about. And I agree with him on that point. But he said that after afterlife is what he always talks about where and that's the resurrection. That's the, the life that you live forever. And it's a new earth, new body, blah, blah, blah. Well, he gets that from Revelation. Unfortunately, he's totally wrong about Paul, I believe. Because Paul does not think that. In this passage that we're talking about tonight, Paul does this argument from polarity, which is a very common way of arguing. <laughs> it's a common way of arguing in Greek rhetoric. There's, there's a great book by Jeff Asher on this, very technical, on uh, polarity um, in 1 Corinthians 15, of his rhetorical style. Where he's like, you've got on the one side this way over here, which is like a terrestrial, earthly, fleshly, perishable body. And then the other side, totally opposite. You have a heavenly body, like the celestial bodies. It's glory, it's not flesh, and it's immortal, it never perishes. And so when we're talking about resurrection, we're not talking, listen you Platonists, we're not talking about a body like this. No, we don't want that kind of body either. Like we're not talking about putting on flesh again. That's not what Paul says. Despite what all these Christians who think they're correcting unorthodox teaching by like, all you people talk about going to heaven, it's really about the resurrection, as if those are distinct things. 
right? Like as if the resurrection has nothing to do about going going to heaven. When in reality, it is all about going to heaven for Paul. It literally is all about that. He's saying the, the argument from polarity is, look, as Adam was made from the dust, he says, we born the image of the man from the dust, from the earth. Now we will bear the image of the man from heaven. We once had a perishable body, the dust guy, you know, Adama literally means from the dust, right? Um, but we will bear the image of the celestial, the immortable, the imperishable. Because if you know the arguments in the Greek world, you know that pneumatic stuff, say for like the Stoic, for example, that's uh, that's the interchangeable with the term ether. So they have the, their idea of the elements or where what the cosmos is made out of, right? Mm. You know, you have the, the four elements like, uh, what is it, water, fire, wind, earth, you know, is like made, makes everything else. But the heavens is made out of ether, right? Mm. Um, that's the immortal stuff. That's the stuff that doesn't perish. It's still a material substance for a lot of Greeks, especially the Stokes. They, they talk, of, and even the Platonists, some Platonists are still materialists, despite what people might tell you. But anyways, th that being said, um, all that to say is ether is interchangeable with pneuma for some of the Stoics. An example of this is in Chrysippus. Oh, but anyways, all that to say, I know what I'm talking about here, is the, 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 the idea that pneumatic being, a pneumatic substance, is a celestial one. So because the celestial bodies are always there, they never perish. They're there for generations, generations, generations. They never go away. But all our fleshly existence keeps corrupting and dying. So it's like resurrection is in order to receive an imperishable body to actually be bodied like the gods, because in his mind they do have bodies, you need this celestial substance. You need to be made of pneuma. So he says the pneuma, the, the soma pneumaticon, the pneumatic body. You don't need the soulish body that Adam once had that made him perishable. You need the last Adam, a new Adam, to become imperishable. Now, why am I harping on this? Because Paul likens the, the, our current existence to the terrestrial and lists those creatures, you know, animals, flesh, uh, fish, and then he goes to the celestial bodies and compares them, right? And everyone's like, oh, he's drawing on Genesis from creation, from creation. <laughs> well, no, if we know, I mean, yes, it is a polemic against that. But remember, the argument for Paul is a polarity over and against Adam, where we're not like the old Adam. We're a whole nother one. So we're a celestial one. We're not a terrestrial one. So if you, if you line up the creature lists that he does the comparison with, with Genesis, they're sort of out of order and backwards. But if you line it up with that Deuteronomy 4 passage, the one that Philo quotes from, the one that Paul's already drawn on in his letter, it lines up perfectly. And that Deuteronomy 4 passage, interestingly enough, is literally telling them not to make images of the gods and worship them, those that were allotted to all the nations under the whole heavens. Don't make images of all the beasts of the field and stuff like that, and the birds of the, the birds of the sky, all that. And don't worship. He doesn't say make images of. He says, but don't worship the celestial bodies because they were allotted to the nations. And his grounds for this, watch this. His grounds for this is, this is from Deuteronomy 4:15 through 20. If you're curious, the passage. 
Um, he says, why do we not worship those other nations, those other gods, those celestial bodies uh, given to the nations? He says, but God has taken you, God, the God of Israel, has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to become for him an allotted people. And he uses the same language as all the celestial bodies allotted over the nations. He's like, when did you become allotted to Yahweh? When you've been taken out from the other nations and delivered, and now your allotment is to, is to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And how, what's the analogy he uses for this? Out of an iron furnace. You know what else you take out of iron furnaces? Idols you make. The, the context here is making an idol, making an image. What does God make in, in creation? He makes an image of himself. Mm -hmm. He makes an idol. So what's God is an <laughs> idol maker. What is what idol does he make? Us. Human beings. <laughs> yeah. 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 Human being is the image of God, the yep. idol of God, the ikon. They, they are the, the image of God. And so what he's doing with Israel, he says, what, hang on, Zechariah, let me finish this thought. Um, what he's doing with Israel, he says, when he takes them out of Egypt, out from under the oppressive gods and oppressive nation, right? He delivers them, and he's taken them out of the furnace. They're all made, and now they're made in his image. And where does he do this? At the mountain, at the heights, you know, when the covenant's finally made with Israel, and who goes up there? Seventy elders. How many nations are there in the Tower of Babel? Seventy. Yep. From the ta from the table of nations in Genesis ten and eleven. Yep. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they're becoming in a in some real sense like the gods. <laughs> they they they're they're not under those powers anymore. They've been redeemed. They've been through the furnace. They're being made in the image of God. They're the imagers, you know. See, they're being made in the image of God. Yeah. So in the Exodus itself. So it's a new thing. They're not one of the nations that's just all from Adam. In Deuteronomy 32, the only place where you have Adam mentioned again um, explicitly, um, other than Deuteronomy 4, when he says, in Deuteronomy 4, uh, it's interesting, uh, and this is in the book chapter, I talk about this, that that's one of the only places where he says, no, nothing has been made greater. Nothing's been made greater than Israel, you know, out of Egypt, out of the Exodus, since the creation of man. Hmm. So this idea that somehow this creation of sons of God, Israel, out from under the gods, becoming like the gods, was like what he did with Adam, but it's nothing's greater happened since then, Deuteronomy says. So if that's the lens, if Paul is using the lens of Deuteronomy and going to those texts and, and to think about how the end is going to take place, then what is, what is it, how does he conceptualize this? What does he think? He says that God is now in Christ. He's making an image again. He's, you once bore the image of the man from the dust. Now you will bear the image of the man from heaven. You have come out from under the powers just like Israel did, and just like Israel was being fashioned into an image, like the celestial host, so too now all these ethne who are coming in, the, all these Gentiles who are coming into Christ, 
and being raised up so that at the great resurrection, they will ascend just like Christ, just like their big brother Christ. They will ascend and they will become as the stars. They will become the gods. They will be divine. They will take up rulership of the cosmos. This is like epic level stuff we're talking about. But this, 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 this is what Paul thinks. But this is, you can imagine how radical this would sound to people in just a regular polis who's going, you know, having dinner with the gods and it's not a big deal. And they're like, God, dude, you're like a crazy apocalypticist. You're like, he's just making us antisocial and weird. Like everyone's going to think we're crazy. Like Paul's the guy, and I think I said this before, it's like he's the guy with the Yale and Harvard education, but he's on the street corner holding the sign, the end is nigh, you know? It's like he's, he's the crazy guy, you know? So it's, you know, this is how he would have been seen, how he would have been viewed by lots of more sort of urbane, sophisticated Platonists, you know? So you, you can see why this was such a huge debate. While people are like, I don't know about this whole the resurrection, this final epic, you know, end of cotton. Like, chill, Paul. Golly. Like, you know, our neighbors are fine. We can still go do this. And he's like, no, you idol worshiping pagans. You know, like, you, know you were pagans. Matter of fact, he says that in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, you were ethne. You were Gentiles or you were nations. And he says, but you're not anymore. So he, he, he literally thinks that through their baptism, they're not one of them anymore so guess what folks christians if you are still holding on to nativism or nationalism or jingoistic forms of patriotism and stuff that is completely foreign to early christianity in paul's mind whoa it won't survive it is antithetical to paul's gospel completely when you were Gentiles or pagans. Yes, the ethne word. Yep. Like you, you, you were often more I could, man. So there it is. There it is. This is the idea. This is the idea that's in Paul, this Deuteronomic sort of way of understanding the cosmos and the gods. This is the frame that frames his argument in First Corinthians 15 of like what is what what do I mean by the nature of the resurrection body? This is what I mean by it. It's like the celestial bodies, it's like the gods have. So th th this is where Paul's going with this. Yeah. It it that's funny. It it reminds me of the uh of the stylites. Um if you're familiar with the stylites, they were Oh yeah, on the pillars, yeah. Yeah, very well educated philosophers and uh well they're the academics and they yeah. would live their lives on the stylites preaching and fasting and <laughs> Yeah, they're weird. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's fascinating. So I, yeah. I, have, I have a question for you because I, I rarely run out into other people that have, that read Philo, <laughs> and so, um, so running back into that and and his ideologies on uh, on, the, on the archons, you know the Banaha, uh, the Banaha, uh, um, yeah. yes, um. <laughs> I am speaking faster than I am. Uh, I'm thinking faster than I am speaking. Um, it's Pentecostal. <laughs> right. I understood. The part that I get confused on in his writings is, is he truly going back into Enochian text? Because when I read through Philo, he doesn't really differentiate between the Archons and the Nephilim themselves. He, he kind of 
he kind of uses the same terminology to re- to reflect back and forth on them. Yeah. Uh, so hmm. I'm trying to figure out a short way to answer this. Okay. Like, so they're they're well because the yeah. Hmm. All right. <laughs> so every they're using Philo is more concerned with getting to the Platonic allegory of the soul and the mastery of the soul. I don't think he's concerned much about the details of the myth. Okay. So, like, so, so he he believes the myth of the of the watchers and all that, and he uses it. He talks has a whole book on the giants. Oh yeah. But it, but yeah, but it, but it's, but it's allegorized. So it's it's working with the tropes that everyone knows, and interpreting it through a Platonic allegory. Okay. Of the soul, and so. He's not going to have the same kind of views that, say, a more apocalyptic thinker would that thinks it's very hard, literal. This is the way the cosmos is, you know. Um, and, and Philo probably he may he may actually think it's literal, but that's not really his point in using the story. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. Like he's not yeah. concerned with arguing the specifics, like. Hmm, well, this is a Nephilim, and this is this. You know, it's like it's more how what is this referring to in the story when it talks about the struggle of the person uh, with reference to the self and mastery and overcoming the vices and blah blah blah. But okay. his etiologies and sources of evil are very similar than as everybody else. That's true. He still yeah. thinks the fallen angels caused most of this. He still, but but a lot of it is again, it's not going to be viewed. Like or how should, I should say it this way, this is might be a helpful way of thinking about it, is it's he he would not see the solutions to that problem okay. anything like Paul. Okay. Well that's so, true, yeah. For Paul, all these powers just have to be destroyed. They have to be done away with. And the very last thing that's killed is death. Okay. So so you know and that's the end of the end, you know. So, but but for Paul, it's like everyone wants to rush to the death part, but nobody wants to talk about. Well, who are all these powers that Jesus has to kill first? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Think about it. If whenever you hear like preaching or teaching on resurrection, it's all about death, you know. And they never they never include anything else because they think resurrection means just getting back up out of the grave. But that's not what Paul says. He he uses a hero to raise up for that. When he talks about resurrection, Anastasis, it always has a definite article in front of it. The resurrection. When you talk about a plant growing out of the ground, you don't call it the growth. You know, <laughs> right. it just grows, right? Yeah. So when Paul talks about rising, I say that because it's used as the metaphor of the seed to talk about the resurrection which is another de- topic, but um, uh, comes from the Seed of Abraham stuff. You can listen to my podcast on that. Um, so the, uh, so what, what Paul says is uh, God, God raises you up, yes, from, from death, but that is part of the larger epic that he calls the resurrection, which includes the apocalyptic demise of the powers. Because he says those enemies have to be defeated first, then we can deal with death. You know. Okay. So if you're thinking, um, in my view and in some others' view, 
uh, how I deal with this in the article is those first enemies that everyone seems to ignore uh, <laughs> is is are the gods of the nations first. Yes. And and then the Genesis six problem, then then death. You know, it's like he 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 has to deal with those. And in Jewish literature, these tend to get squashed at times, and they overlap. Like, you know, Genesis six and Genesis eleven. Sometimes they overlap because they're all about like the nations and everyone else but the righteous seed. You know, right? <laughs> everyone else but the seed of Abraham. You know, it's like they're <laughs> all bad. You know, and they all have like gods mixing with them and ruling over them. And, you know. So. Yeah. That's because so, we were yeah. we were we were dueling a little bit back and forth on that one because we had uh, I'll leave everybody else nameless on this one, but <laughs> we were going back and forth on this one because there was the idea that well demons were the you know the the fallen spirits of the Nephilim and he would say no 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 and that's because uh, Philo also refers to the fallen as demons as well and so we would go back and forth and yeah. back and forth on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but th- 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 this is so. This is the problem with with not um, this problem with the ancient language, just like any language. Okay. Okay. Like our our language does this all the time. Is we can use one word and it means a hundred different things. Okay. Right. Same with daimonia. Daimonia can mean all kinds of stuff. I mean, it can mean lower tier deities over the polises. You know, that's the way Plato and others use it. You know, in in Greek literature, um, it can mean that. It can mean so territorial spirits of some kind. Um, it can mean like the lowest grunts under all the other gods, you know, that are just like worker bees. It can mean um, the spirit that like um, takes over you or inspires you, you okay. know, like. Um, so Socrates has a daimon, you know, that like gives him his wisdom or whatever. Yeah. Um, and the the idea of eudaimonia in in Greek philosophy of like you know, pure mind or like nirvana, we might say, or just the, like the perfect state of the mind is, is again, like a, uh, a wise spirit, like a, wis- a spirit of wisdom, you might say. Um, so it's, again, you can personify these things. Oh, and di- daimons could be like, you can have a daimon of a dead person. You can have daimon that are just regular spirits that are wandering around. They don't have to be like bad. Some of them could be good. Some of them could be malevolent, you know, malevolent. Um, so this is why the Gospels have to clarify. You know, okay. When they mention it in like the first exorcism stories, they'll say an evil and unclean spirit. You know? <laughs> it won't just say a spirit because it could be like a good one that like wants to help you. You know. So it's like they have to clarify what we're talking about here is <laughs> evil, unclean ones. You know. So this. So again, this word can mean a hundred different things, and to different authors. You know, okay. Different authors may use the term differently in different times, so that's that's yeah, that's important. Cool. To I, I I thank you. I, I apologize for stumbling over myself. I kind of got excited jumping into Philo there, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> we pause right there. We're gonna do a word from our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to train Muay Thai? Perhaps there's no gyms near you. Perhaps you work odd hours. Perhaps, like a few of us. You don't like germs. Whichever way it goes, you can train online with some of the best instructors from around the country, either live or in class with other students. Living Muay Thai gives you the chance to do all of this and much more. So jump into live classes and on demand right now. LivingMuayThai.com. <laughs> so. 
speaking of like words that mean different things to different authors, like I I agree with you, but I, I want to to provide like a pushback so you can like uh, explain something to okay sure uh, some of our, our our viewers because like I mean some people who like follow uh, certain uh, trains of thought on like what Paul means by like spiritual body, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they might go to like so, something like Luke uh, 24 or 39 and talk about how Jesus says he's not an, a spirit, a pneuma, right? But he's instead. Yeah. Uh, Flash. Uh, yeah. Uses the same words that Paul does, but, but yeah. yeah. So, so what's, what is kind of the, the different context there that kind of explains what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, so that's that's not really a pushback, but yeah, I'll, I'll deal with that. Um, so, uh, as it, first of all, let me just preface my response so I'm not judged accordingly. So I'm judged. <laughs> that, um, my role as an academic is to be a historian. So I'm a like a religious studies. I'm pursuing a religious studies PhD. I'm not pursuing a theology PhD. So I'm dealing with a period in time mm. as a historian. So like. In this period of time, like, so for me, I'm not bound as a historian by some of the same sort of um, orthodox commitments to, or theological commitments that are a priori about scripture. Mm -hmm. I'm more looking at these texts in their historical environs for the sake of history's sake. You know, so I'm like, Luke and Paul don't have to agree for me in that. Like, they can disagree. So I don't personally, I, uh, if I'm wearing my historian hat, like, I don't think Paul and Luke agree on that. Or that Luke could be trying to clear up as the receiver of Paul, because I think he is. Um, Luke is trying to clear up what Paulinists are doing with Paul's letters on that, on this issue. Um, so, you know, that one, of the, one of the reasons why N.T. Wright, among others, have a problem with saying, okay, this astralization stuff, is off, you know, that's not what Paul's saying. And this was the critique I got from him at the Society of Biblical Literature when I had to defend this paper against him, um, well, an earlier paper against him on this issue, is he would say, and I'm just using him again as an example, is he would say that, well, that's what Platonists believe, you know, they believe in astralization, or that's what proto-Gnostics or Gnostics believe. Yeah, um, it's kind but of the a, problem is, that's not the only option. <laughs> Those are not the only options. It, it, it's it's not you're either a Platonist or a Gnostic or you're Paul. I'm like that's not. There's like a plethora of views in in the Greco-Roman world, and the Stoics are one example. I mean, of many of who. And I, the reason I keep bringing up the Stoics is because Paul does use a lot of their language and a lot of their concepts. I'm not saying Paul's a Stoic. I'm saying he's he's a utilitarian with his rhetoric, in the sense that he's using things that would make sense to a Greek audience to explain a very Jewish apocalyptic narrative, you know? So how do you get Greeks to buy into this? Well, you have to use, like, Greek scientific arguments that are going on in their own day, you know? And so that's what I'm arguing that Paul's doing there. So I do not think that Luke's agenda is the same, nor do I think it's necessary for them to mean the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, it's it's very it's very easy to go from two different contexts and even the New Testament say, okay, they're using one word one way, and the other person means the exact same thing of the 
by the yeah. word, and so we have to square them exactly. Yeah, basically that's that's like first year Greek. You know, you see all the parallels, and you're like, oh my god, this is this, and this is this. And then, <laughs> then like second year Greek is like, oh yeah, all that you learned is BS. So uh, <laughs> all those rules that you learned, here's like seventy five hundred million, um, you know, rule breakers. You know, <laughs> it's like so. I am not claiming. Let me be very clear on this because I did not pass my Greek competency exam the first time I took it. <laughs> Hellenistic Greek is another ball game, man. It is really hard. Um, so, so I'm not claiming to be a Greek expert. I'm more of like an intertextuality person, traditions, history, that kind of stuff. I learn a lot from the grammarians, you know, but I am not a grammarian. That's not my primary role. Um, so let me just be clear about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I think we all like the contextualizations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, just for for some Christian uh, drama that kind of, kind of overlaps because I, 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 I knew about, about your, uh, your issues with that, that, that view, right. But uh, uh, the, the funny thing that happened is uh, some, some drama went down uh, to, to give a background, which is that uh, N.T. Wright wrote like a translation of the new Testament. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, Along came uh, David Bentley Hart, and he yeah. also wrote a translation. I'm well aware and of then, it. And then uh, write, <laughs> writes a review of that, <laughs> and yeah. uh, he 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 reaped the whirlwind as it was. <laughs> okay, I knew this was going to come up, so <laughs> I had to bring it up because <laughs> I knew I I knew you would be the one to bring this up. So. Um, <laughs> The the, the the Bentley Hart right feud when when Bentley Hart wrote that thing about what Paul really believes about eschatology or whatever whatever the article was it was like holy crap just lampooning right uh, uh, you know my message box was bombarded I mean just like oh man David does Hart get Paul right is, is Hart getting Paul right it sounds like he's saying what you're saying but it's like and I think for the most part in that particular article he was right but I think he thinks Paul's way more of a Platonist than I'm comfortable with oh yeah um I do not agree with him on a lot of that stuff but the general idea of astralization and heavenly bodies and stuff and becoming like angels and all that kind of thing yeah Hart is totally right and he was right to critique right. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how we just keep keep like yeah, alliterating there. I, I don't I didn't want him to come up so much because I just think he's very wrong on this. I, I think mm. I, I I think that there we're missing the ball game here because the, the the I think the main reason why this is, and again, this is just my view. You you don't have to believe it or not, but but uh, you know, having worked on this for uh, for a lot of years now. Um, I would say that one of the reasons why this sort of astralization view of resurrection um, and deification view in particular is, is sort of poo-pooed by some of these folks is because um, they, they're like, well, we don't have that cosmology. You know, their cosmology we don't share. And so if you're saying that Paul's literally meaning that with that ancient cosmological view, then it's like the Bible's wrong then. The Bible has faults, and we can't have the Bible have faults, you know? Yeah, we can't we'll, have we'll literally become stars. Yeah, so it's like, so Paul, 
for me, Paul can literally mean that, and I don't have to believe it. So, right. so it, 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 I know that makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable, but it's like <laughs> Paul. Paul was wrong about all kinds of things. Like he thought the end was going to happen, and it didn't. So, if he did write the pastorals, which I'm on the, I don't think he did. Um, hmm. uh, it, it, then, then like, but when I say the pastoral epistles, I mean First, uh, Second Timothy, and Titus. For the listeners who don't know. Um, it, and again, it doesn't matter. I mean, if he did or didn't, I don't really care. It, it goes it goes either way. But if you ask me my opinion, I'd be like, yeah, he probably didn't. Because pseudepigrapha, like writing in someone's name, is very common in that period. Oh, yeah. And we have it all over the place in early Judaism and in the New Testament. I mean, um, Jude, uh, Second Peter is basically copying Jude, you know? It's like literally. I mean, just copying oh. stuff from Oh, it's so, theme for theme all the way down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, this is a really common thing. I mean, the, I mean, literally, we have four Gospels, people. Like, we literally have <laughs> Gospels rewriting the other Gospels. Mm-hmm. And they tell you they're doing that. So, so <laughs> how is this hard for people to buy into? Like, you literally have Luke telling you, I looked over these other accounts. Right. And they're and I wrote an orderly one. <laughs> I wrote the cool version. <laughs> Wait, you know that little thing called Mark? Screw that guy. Mine's way better. <laughs> you know, so, I know I'm being like super unorthodox right now, but welcome to history, folks. Like, history's messy. When you start getting in the weeds of this stuff, it will screw with your bibliology. That's just the way it is. I mean, you, but the question is, some of these fundamentalists who get so bent out of shape with inerrancy don't realize that they are they think they're defending the Bible. That's what they think they're doing. Yeah. They think they're defending the Bible. When I'm like, the people who are doing the really, really critical historical work are d- using much more methodological care than you guys are using. <laughs> they're, right? they're much more critical and careful with their methodology and what they say about these texts than the other guys. And so, now, granted, all of this stuff, there's a million exceptions to every rule, right? So it's like I'm painting with a broad brush. But, but generally speaking, I think because I grew up in evangelicalism, I was trained in inerrantist circles originally, I know them in and out. I know all the arguments. I know what all the crazy apologists say. I, I know. Uh, so, I mean, I, bring, bring them before me, you know, as the in-person. As, as you're going through this, my, my ears can't help but be burning with our previous conversation from 61 and 62, where we did a lot of oh, no. relating um, contemporary issues of racial justice back to the politics of Jesus' day and the conflict between the Pharisees mm-hmm. and the Romans okay. and Jesus okay. and all that. Yeah, sure, so, sure. you know, I hear I hear Philo and, and you know, when as we talk about the, you, the, the Greek and Roman gods and kind of how they conform to like a political body in a way with these hierarchy and, yeah. you know, obviously kind of generally knowing that the Greek and Roman gods were, you know, officially endorsed by the government. Like, I can't help but wonder, yeah. like, is Philo making a a pro-government political statement? And is Paul, in, you know, Paul, of course, we know he was extradited to Rome eventually. Is he making an anti-government <laughs> political statement? Are these, are these yeah. political as well as, hmm. you know, spiritual Ooh, good arguments question. here? Yes, that's that's a fabulous question. It's it, it's a really well conceived question, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, the the so there's a lot of debate about this, like lots and lots and lots of debate about this question. Um, some some would say that Paul is like completely anti-imperialist, just completely like 
to hell with Rome, literally. You know, like just get, <laughs> this. The, it, it, that's the problem. You know, Satan, uh, Caesar, same thing. You know, this. You know, but which, from a Jewish apocalyptic perspective, is very true. I mean, that m most like when you read Qumran and and, and some other texts that uh, they're later than Qumran, they're apocalyptically minded. They will talk about the Katim or the Romans as like literally in line with Belial. I mean, Belial's behind them. Yeah. The, the, the chief of demons, the, the Satan figure, you know, the Hasatan, you know. So like that, but these are different figures too in Judaism. I don't want to conflate them all the time because sometimes they're different. Um, but, uh, but just to say, generally speaking, yes, there are those who say Paul is 100% against Rome. He's, he wants it to fall. He wants it to come down. And um, he's completely anti-imperial. And there's what's called hidden transcripts in Paul. I don't know if you've heard this term before, but it was popularized by a historian and sociologist and, and scholar of religion named James Scott. And this became very popular, uh, among others, but he's a sort of notable figure that wrote a book on hidden transcripts that, that a lot of um, New Testament scholars sort of glommed onto. Um, some prominent figures um, that write in Pauline studies that take this view uh, uh, are Richard Horsley. Um, he's a very popular scholar in the, along these uh, the anti-imperial thought in Paul. Matter of fact, he's sort of the go-to, I think, because he did he did a, a couple edited volumes that you might want to look into, like Paul and Empire and Paul in the Imperial Order or something like that. I don't know, something like that. Um, but I have all his stuff. He, that's, that's good if you want to sort of get those views. Hmm. Um, others would say that, no, he doesn't care about Rome. Like, Rome's not on the table. He's more worried about all the powers behind the nations. Yeah. He's worried about, like, the evil realm. He's, Rome is like just another Babylon or Syria or Greece or Egypt. They're all the same. You know, so th that's not the real problem. The real problem is the powers behind the powers. Well, and I think, th th so, or or just sin, you know? Like, this is real popular with the Reformed guys who push back against certain anti-imperialists for being uh, too liberal um, because, uh, so this, this is why this question is so hard to answer, right. because all the scholarly answers to it are wrapped up with contemporary political issues. Huh. So a lot of the people that answer these questions historically have contemporary political biases that inform their position. So like, for example, you'll have some scholars who are like writing a book about anti-imperialism in Paul and spend half the book critiquing American imperialism, you know? Yeah. And so like, Yes, I'm with you, bro. Like I'm American imperialism, <laughs> but let's talk about Paul when we're talking about Paul. You know, it's like yeah. so. Um, so it's a very complex question, and it's a very important question you're asking because there is a huge spectrum of belief on this. Um, I tend to take a sort of uh, what some might call a middle of the road perspective. I don't. I think I'm pretty hard line, but. Uh, but I think I, uh, I take a very moderate view to some that says these are not mutually exclusive uh, paradigms. Yeah. You know, they only become mutually exclusive paradigms when you de-theologize the cosmos. So, like, all the powers aren't, like, really real. I mean, we don't think the Star of Gods or blah, blah, blah. So those aren't real. So it's really just about the politics, you know? So if you throw out, if you sort of, 
Boltmon it up real quick and throw out all the mythological stuff. <laughs> then all you're left with is and, which I'm not I'm not ranting on Boltmon. He's smarter than all of us combined. Yeah. So and write some of the best New Testament scholarship there is. But um uh yeah, he, I'm actually three generations behind Boltmon now because of at Marquette. Um but uh so, so all that to say that there's there's political views that are, I think, undergirding some of the decisions that are being made about what Paul means historically. Yeah. So so my moderating position would say that yes, he's anti-imperial in the sense that the cosmos is a government. Yeah. You know, you you have to think of from their worldview, the cosmos is literally a polis. Mm-hmm. It has a hierarchy to it. And the the hierarchy structure has to change, and this is where you're Keith, you're dead on in seeing the sort of political political turmoil this would cause yeah. in Paul's, because if Paul's really saying what he's saying to the Corinthians, this would screw up their politics. They would be the crazy apocalypticists. They get looked on as sort of like anti-Rome or anti-Arpolis, anti the city, anti the city's gods, you know. They would be anti-city. They would be anti-social. So they'd be seen as a crazy people. But for Paul, it's like, well, to hell with them. Because God's going to just destroy them all. We're going to judge all these stupid angels they worship anyways. So why do you keep worshiping these things? So so for him, it doesn't matter. He doesn't care. Because the empire has, has gods behind it that you're right to point out are all sanctioned by the empire. And every imperial function... Every yeah. single one are yeah. dedicated to the gods. I, I could see where and, you, I was going to say I could see where your latter point is also rel, uh, relative too, because if you reflect on um, say Romans and uh, Ephesians, there's that idea of well the powers are the powers and that's fine, but these are the actual powers behind the powers. So you I, I could see that side of it as well. Well, yeah, and so I think it's a both and. I don't yeah. think it, it, in in a Jewish apocalyptic frame of reference, you can never separate these two. Right. Like, um, it, it, you, when when the powers go down, that means the nations that are being run by them go down. You know. Now, mm. the, the the distinction where Paul's arguments get really complicated is because if you know that sort of a general take on Jewish apocalyptic, which it is, um you know there's debates even among those guys. You right. know? It's like it's like you can go find some fundamentalist group now that's like into the world, you know, you know, blah blah blah, signs and wonders people now. Like and Pence. you will find <laughs> like uh, fifteen hundred views amongst yeah. those people. Yeah. So it's like, you know, th- you know, so someone from the outside would just say, Oh, they're all the crazy people, mm. but like but the people inside, they are arguing with each other. Because yeah. they're in their they're in their tunnel vision, you know. So for Paul, he can say to the other apocalypticists who are like, "No, all those Gentiles are toast," you know. <laughs> in the eschaton, all the Gentiles' gods and the Gentiles are toast. They are we're going to kill them all. And so you can't have Gentiles coming into the family being called <laughs> seed of Abraham. Are you kidding me? So this is why Gentiles. One of the many reasons. There's many reasons. But one of the many reasons why Gentiles want to get snip snip, they want to get circumcision, they want to take on because <laughs> they want they want to be Jews. Yeah, like Jews are saved by the Jewish God. 
the Jewish God is mad, and he's the creator, and he's going to kill off all the other nations' gods, and I don't want to be killed with all this. I want to be a Jew, so I'm saved by the Jew God. You know? <laughs> but, so this is, this is um, and there's also political reasons for that. Because, you know, after Augustus, you have laws protecting Jews to, to practice their sort of mono, monolatrous practices right. where they don't have to go and pay obeisance to like an imperial statue or they don't have to give worship to the gods or let's say they go to the games. They don't have to, uh, you know, give worship to the games. You know, they can worship in their temple in Jerusalem and that's they're good. You know, they don't have to worship any of the gods. So Augustus made provision for them. And so if you become a Jew, you're safe. You don't have to worry about that stuff. So when an emperor gets kind of starts cracking down and uh, and sort of imperial worship starts, and that's debated too when that starts and if it has any influence in Paul at all. But but the the point is this will become a problem later. Yeah. So if it's not already in Paul, it will become a problem later. So it's like again, you need to know some of those contextual de- debates and arguments because there's layers to it you know it's like so that it's everything that you believe about the apocalypse and the end or whatever is of course political in this world there is no distinction between the political and the religious yeah i mean everything is religious in the political sphere everything is political in the religious sphere well even so, even some of your first century well i should say second century uh fathers saw that it was um justin martyr who related that the titans and their sons, you know, Hercules, Perseus, and all that they that they were the fallen entities. They were the fallen angels and the archons and the, and the Nephilim and the so relating that even in his day, you know, in the in the second century. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I mean, they, they're always looking. You got to remember these are apologetic texts. You know, they're they're looking to try to convince Greeks of uh, their religion. I mean, literally, right. He's one of the first of what we call apologists, you know, which means something different back then than it means today. Right. You know, uh, you know, today they're using sort of like naturalistic arguments against <laughs> naturalists. Right. And it's just, <laughs> Less <laughs> philosophy. Very Ouch. But, um, well, it's, it is what it is. I mean, it's true. So, so <laughs> I've, I've heard them all, man. <laughs> Well, the Kalam cosmologic argument says, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so the, the, these uh, the ancient apologists, yeah, they're doing this all the time. They'll they'll what we would call like is like modern historians, um, not so much postmodern, but but sort of modern historians would say that um, Justin is doing uh, like syncretism, you know, for the sake of sort of rhetoric and winning ground and sort of for his team, you know? So, like, he'll say, oh, you know, what we're saying about Jesus is no different than what you say about Zeus or Hercules or whatever, you know? He ascends to the heavens and blah, blah, blah. That's what we say, you know? We say the same thing. Right. Caesar or everybody else, you know? So it's like they have a, they categorically don't want to be excluded as these weird new people because in Rome, in ancient Greco-Roman world, new religion equals bad. You know, right? Like, yeah, it's if you can trace your things to antiquity, you're legit. You know, yeah. So this well, is this is why you'll find um, all sorts of little polemics like this yeah. in Josephus and Philo when you read them carefully. You'll find them saying things like, <laughs> I mean, Josephus will say things like, "Oh, you know the Spartans? 
they're just you know billy bad warriors everybody knows (laughs) we're actually kin to them because we trace our heritage back to abraham right so we're kin with the spartans and it's like what What genealogy are you reading Josephus? (laughs) these people are always like oh you know the chaldean sciences you know the babylonians where we get all our astral calendar stuff and all our knowledge of the heavens well, that was actually taught to Abraham back in Genesis 15, and the Chaldeans got it from him. So, so well, they're all Jews are always doing this. Yeah, it's, I, it's a self-legitimation. Mm. It's it's a, it's an argument for identity yeah. in a in a, in a diaspora context, in a foreign context where they're legitimizing their own existence, their own philosophy, their own monolatry, their own sacred texts, their own traditions. Why are they circumcised? Why don't they go to the cities? Why do they only <laughs> eat this stuff? Why don't they eat this stuff? You know, yeah. it's like, so you have to legitimate your traditions. You have to say them in a vernacular and in a, in a in a way that is contextualized that makes sense to the people around you. Yeah. Well, I mean, one one could argue that Justin Martyr actually learned that from Paul himself through his writings because it was at the Areopagus. He doesn't even use scripture. He uses their own playwrights and their their own poets. So, and scripture, yeah, but yeah, he, yeah, he does, he does. But this yeah. is a common, you know, Paul's just copying rhetoricians of the day, or Luke is copying what rhetoricians of the day do. So, anyways, yeah, yeah any more questions? <laughs> so, real quick though, like going back to Philo, like what you were just yeah, saying sure. there about like trying to, you know, legitimate Judaism in this, in you know, in the rest of the Roman Empire, um, is is he he basically saying? Let's you know. Is he just trying to make nice? Is he just trying to say like, hey, no, Judaism doesn't actually go against the government, like, or does he like really believe this? Yeah, yeah. So you're yes. I, to, the the easy answer is yeah. You're right on that. I mean, I think he is trying to play as nice as he feels that he can play with the Alexandrian authorities. I mean, Alexandria is one of the hubs of Judaism in the in that period. I mean. There's so many Jews in Alexandria, mm. when, um, and a lot of our, a lot of literature, a lot of Jewish Greek literature that ends up in scripture is coming from Alexandria. So like Wisdom of Solomon, for example, and, and other texts that, that sort of come out of that tradition. Um, and and you, you got to remember, too, it's like Philo becomes used as like a hermeneutic for the fathers. I mean, uh, through it's not just origin, but origin is like a Philo scholar. He was obsessed with Philo, and and he would he took uh, Philo's corpus to Caesarea, um, and so the Caesarean fathers were all learning that Alexandrian style of exegesis through Philo too. So I mean, Philo becomes, and the only reason we have Philo Greek texts is because of the church. So the church preserves this stuff in Greek, you know. Yeah. Um, so the Jews don't preserve Philo like 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 the Christians did. I'm not saying Jews didn't preserve Philo. I'm just saying Christians were obsessed with that. The Alexandrian fathers, they're obsessed with that way of reading scripture. And that was like, I mean, they're literally like just like citing him or quoting him. They'll, they'll make up stories like Philo met with the apostles. And, <laughs> Interesting. Philo's text to the Therapeutae, which is some Jewish like esoteric sort of uh, aesthetic sect. He says, they are Christians. He met with the Christians, you know, and like so he's talking about the early Christians, and so you know, it, it they they Christianize him, yeah. and so early on, yes, I think politically he's saying things 
like what I read, I read that passage in particular out of all the other stuff that's quoted because I think it captures the heart of what the debate is. Mm -hmm. Because if you're saying that, look, 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 I get it. Greeks, I'm not saying that just because they're rulers and gods or whatever, <laughs> that they should all be destroyed. You know, I just think mm -hmm. you need to worship the high God. You know, they, because they're rulers, they're liable to correction, but they're very virtuous. They're never going to undergo it. They're right. fine. You know, so that that's sort of, you know, that's politically nice. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like saying, well, Judaism, Judaism is like way better than y'all, but like, but y'all are cool too. I mean, it's like you know, it's like <laughs> you see what I'm saying. It's like you you want to say that your God is best, your God is real. And everything that y'all say is like what we say about our God. It's just yeah. you didn't realize that Plato got it from Moses, you know? So, and that's literally what he says. I mean, so you try to root what the dominant thought is in the culture and say, well, it's our guys that gave you this. So as <laughs> to legitimate yourselves, you know? Um, whereas like, y'all are the weird ones. It's like, well, no, actually we gave you all your best thoughts. You know, it's like, so... <laughs> It's rhetorically really savvy, you know. It's like, <laughs> so yeah, it's politically savvy. It's rhetorically savvy. I mean, Philo is. There's so many levels to how he's arguing and like what he's trying to, you know, who he's trying to appease and who he's trying to convince that Moses is right and your guys are wrong, you know. Yeah. And and he's still against idolatry. It's just not with the apocalyptic fervor of Paul because Paul thinks. The apocalyptic time is now in his day. He thinks this is going down. Yeah. Um, and some people would be like, oh my gosh, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> you did, um, outside of Philo, though, I thought you did a nice job with other supporting texts because you, you dive into like uh, Sirach and, and, and other of the, uh, what with, yeah, the evangelical side is called uh, the Apocrypha. So it's right, yeah. um yeah, he did a nice job diving into those and the worldview that's inside Sirach. Yeah, yeah, because the, the Sirach text is really important, I think, just to just to show a reflection of how close and just natural it is for them to take texts like like Deuteronomy four, um, and, and sort of the Deuteronomic worldview, um uh how to just read them together with creation. It's like they're just talking about the same thing. Like you know, creation of Adam is just like the creation of Israel, you know, which the Bible does. I mean, the, the, the Torah does that itself. You don't need to go anywhere else. Genesis does that itself. I mean, Adam is basically Israel. Israel is Adam, you know. Right. Like the whole, the whole story, I'm serious. I mean, the story of the creation of Adam is like a the epic of Israel. That's what it is. I mean, you got to think, these are etiologies written long, 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 long after the fact. So so when you're when you're writing about... Um, yeah, I just put my cards on the table on my bibliology there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, these are not written by Moses. Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I didn't think they were. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, the early texts, especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis, I think that once you cross-culturally examine, examine them, you could see that they are just, they're common tales of the people, right? So Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's yeah. so clearly post-Babylonian that you don't need a degree to find this. I mean, you can you can just do basic research yourself if you read the right stuff and see the parallels, and you're like, oh, whoa, 
and like <laughs> almost where it's intentional. But all you need is a text of Genesis to know there's a redactor of some kind, even if it did come from Moses. I'm not saying it didn't come from Moses. Right. I'm just saying the texts that we have are not written by Moses. <laughs> right. You know? Because the texts we have tell you, Genesis literally says, uh, say, I don't know, you could pick any number of passages, but say that uh, the, the genealogy of Esau, you know, um, uh, you, you go all the way back, you, the genealogy goes all the way up to like Hadad, who like warred against Solomon, you know, and it's like, and the, and the author tells you, and there were no kings in Israel in those days. This is Genesis. <laughs> so Genesis itself is telling you that the kings of Israel are like way in the past. <laughs> so I'm like, so clearly, folks, there's a redactor. Clearly, somebody's putting this stuff together. Okay. Right. Like this is not. This isn't some crazy left-wing liberal conspiracy about the Bible or blah blah blah. It's like, no, we just read the Bible better than you. Like, <laughs> it literally just says on the page, like, kings of the Israel were in the past. Okay, so yeah. we're dealing with the text that's later than the kings. So, you know, it's pretty simple. Well, plus, you plus, need a Bible degree. And plus, place names were obviously edited later, right? Because there's no way that you have these. It's like the Well of Dan. <laughs> well, I don't think that came at yeah. the same time yeah. period. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're using like yeah, post Babylonian and like Persian names for places, and I'm like, okay, Persia's like after Babylon. I'm like, what the heck, you know? So, yeah, so clearly, yeah, it's crazy. But you know, but it. Listen, I I don't mean to, I should be nicer, but but um, look, the the reality is you have to go through this paradigm shift at some point if you're going to take these texts really seriously historically, right? Like. If you care about taking them seriously historically, you're going to have to go through these like really sometimes heartbreaking paradigm shifts. I mean, uh, and so I should be more careful. It's just it's hard to keep patience with fundamentalists because fundamentalists think they have a corner on the market when it comes to biblical interpretation. Let me tell you, they don't. I mean, they're they're living in a in an echo chamber and they don't listen to anybody else. You know, so. it's yeah. kind of like a thing where you have to toe the line. Okay, how do I not break this person who is like right. so set in right. their beliefs, but at the same time, yeah. you know, this is a thing that I gotta be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, my my initial thing that I do with like some students who are brand new to this, who might come from a conservative background, is is just take them through what the texts say. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to get into you know, Babylonian or Akkadian stuff or Egyptian stuff or Canaanite stuff. You don't have to get into all that stuff. You can just say, okay, well, let's go see what these texts say, you know? Yeah. And, and and then you can look at, so what are the earliest interpretations, like the farthest back that we can go that are earlier than the biblical texts that we get our Bibles from? Well, how do they read them, you know? Right. And then, because they're much, they're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years closer than we are into this stuff, and and which is not really mean that they're right. You know, that's not what it means. It just means that how are they reading this literature? You know, and and uh, when you start to see that, oh, whoa, they're saying all kinds of weird stuff about it. What like when I started reading the rabbis early on, I was just like, what? How the crap did they get that from Genesis? You know, and, it's, <laughs> but, and, and you know, because of my natural sort of Protestantism growing up, you know, it's like it's just like. 
This is not just, I want to know what this text means in its historical context. And, but but the, the, there is all sorts of creative layering of interpretation over time where the interpretation gets sort of so intertwined with the text that they just sort of become a unit, you know? And then it, other things glom onto it. That's the way tradition works. You know, you get pieces on tradition and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. It's the snowball down the hill thing. And that's the way biblical interpretation works too. Yeah. Join us in part three for the rest of the conversation.